Welcome to the Campus Energy and Sustainability Podcast. In each episode, we'll talk with leading campus professionals, thought leaders, engineers, and innovators, addressing the unique challenges and opportunities facing higher ed and corporate campuses. Our discussions will range from energy conservation and efficiency to planning and finance, from building science to social science, from energy systems to food systems. We hope you're ready to learn, share, and ultimately accelerate your institution towards solutions. I'm your host, Dave Carlsgott. I'm a principal at Fovia, an energy, carbon, and business planning firm. And even our students say, as they graduate and, and, and they move on, it's like, I will be a bus rider for life because of what I get as a part of my experience at the University of Washington. I mean, we, yeah. we hear students say, I will choose where I live in the future to make sure it is near transit. I mean, that's, that's, that's social behavior change. In this episode, you'll hear my interview with Ann Eskridge, Director of Transportation Services at the University of Washington. I hope regular listeners will find this interview to be a nice compliment to my conversation with Arjun Sarkar in episode 27. In that episode, we focus primarily on advanced fuels and vehicle electrification. In this interview, Anne will also touch on a few of those topics, but she'll quickly widen the sustainability lens to discuss regional transportation, car sharing, electric bikes and scooters, transportation equity issues, waste, reuse, water, and more. I think you'll find Anne both deeply knowledgeable and disarmingly entertaining as she shares lessons learned from her storied career at the University of Washington. Be sure to listen to the end of this complete episode for the full sustainability odyssey. I hope you enjoy this interview with Anne Eskridge, recorded November 27th, 2019. And it's nice to have you on the podcast today. Wonderful to be here today. I appreciate that we're actually in your living room, so maybe I should give some background on how we ended up here. I was talking with your colleague, Claudia Frere-Anderson, at the Aishi Conference over lunch earlier this fall. I was talking about some of the projects we were working on. We were working on a series about women working in male-dominated fields, and then another one about fleet management. And Claudia said, oh, you have to talk to Anne. So I guess that's how we ended up here. So, But then, then when we did our prep call, I was kind of hoping to pull you into either one of those projects. But then I quickly realized that we had way too much to talk about. So we're here. Let's just do a full episode. Sound good to you? Sounds wonderful. <laughs> I'd be glad to help. I had the pleasure of working with the University of Washington a couple of years ago on some long-range planning projects. But there are so many things I didn't get to touch. So there were a lot of initiatives that I think you actually have been involved with over your last 20 years or so. Let's touch on as many of those as we can. And then our goal is just to draw out some of the themes that arise through there. Okay. Tell us who you are. All right. Well, my name is Ann Eskridge, and I'm the Director of Transportation Services currently at the University of Washington. I just celebrated a 20-year anniversary, so it's been interesting to be in one place that long and work to try to make a difference and leave the place better than I found it. That's great. Yeah, we've been in Seattle about the same amount of time then, it sounds like. Well, good. Can you give us a little background on just the University of Washington? I think you know people in the Northwest understand the, the campus, but I'm sure a lot of people around the country don't really realize how big of an institution it is and, and just the vastness of the programs. Yes, the University of Washington has large shoulders. Even in the city of Seattle, we think of it as a city inside of a city. 100,000 people come to campus every day. We have a law school. We have a med school. We have undergraduate and graduate work that goes on. We have our own power plant and a large fleet. We have shuttle services, and it's a robust both residential campus and commuter campus, which is interesting. We are both, and 
it's an exciting place to be. You work primarily at the Seattle campus, right? I know there's also Bothell campus. Yes, we do consulting with Bothell and Tacoma, but my home and my responsibilities are at the Seattle campus. All right, great. Okay, and your particular role right now is around transportation, but maybe let's start backwards and we'll get to that. Tell us, where did you start? Because uh, you didn't necessarily start just in transportation, right? Um, actually, I did. I started initially in transportation, but not with the role that I have now. The transportation role that I had when I joined the University of Washington was in property and transport services. So I was responsible for the university's surplus program, and that's a surplus really in reuse program. We only have 1% to 2% waste out of about 80,000 items the university surpluses each year. I also oversaw the university's shuttle programs, our moving services on campus, and our recycling and solid waste program. And so it was also a large role and and shoulder position uh, there as well. Then I went on to serve for nine years in logistics and supply chain management in charge of facility stores. And how I used to talk about that particular role is we have over 100 shops on campus, everything from masons to carpenters to plumbers. And I was a part of the process where we bought everything the university needed to fix itself. How, how did that get combined? That seems an odd combination of, of things. Was it just because you were the one that stepped up to do those roles or are they strategically combined? I think it was an oddity to combine stores with moving and surplus, but we ended up doing that purely out of architecture and geography in terms of saving the university space and place. But my job that I originally took in, in property and transport services, we called it kind of the transportation hodgepodge, meaning everything but what I do now, which is oversee our university UPASS program and oversee parking services. And then now, once again, overseeing our fleet and shuttle services. So it was a, it was a place to put transportation-related programs other than our UPASS fleet and parking program. Was it limited to waste and reuse in transportation-related things, or was that campus-wide? Like every- um, How recycling and solid waste got combined in is because we had to use so many trucks and vehicles to do that work. Oh, I guess that so makes sense. So sometimes we, sometimes we said, hey, we're responsible on campus with everything on wheels. Okay, <laughs> if it, it had wheels underneath it, it was part of a transportation-related program. Things that were on top of those wheels, like moving trucks or recycling and solid waste trucks, did the tasks uh, associated with that. So that's how kind of we would tease each other as colleagues. It's like, if it's got wheels underneath it, then we have something to do with it. That, that makes total <laughs> sense. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I hadn't really made that. Con- I guess I should make that connection. But I, you think right. about piles of stuff in a warehouse, I guess they have for them to be useful, moving them around. Is exactly, actually exactly. Like, like the surplus program, it's hard to believe that we surplus that much a year, 80,000 items. So you have trucks that you have to pick it up. We have places where we have to sell it at auction, and then we have to load it out to the customers that buy that for reuse sake. Okay, and I, I do know that you are a former auctioneer. Is that directly related to that experience? Then? It is, it is. So for 17 years, I served as the university's auctioneer, the very first auctioneer for the University of Washington. They sent me to Missouri for two weeks for auctioneer boot camp, and 
I had fun with a lot of guys with chewing tobacco and Stetson hats and was one of the few women in the room. And um, as a result of that, the university was able to save an enormous amount of money by schooling me in a very unique trade and then me being able to sell the university's goods at a much better price than either giving them for free or the other ways we were trying to sell them. And we built a real robust community of reuse dealers so that the university could get some money for the wonderful things that still had some life in them. And then they could be used elsewhere. Got it. Okay. So now in your current role, tell me a little bit about the the scale of what you're managing. So you mentioned the UPASS program, which I guess is that's like cards that people can use to get on a bus or a train or... Yes, yeah, certainly. There are now transit cards and passes that people use all over the country in the United States now. So we have what's called the ORCA card and we're partners with transit across the Puget Sound region. We have to get 100,000 folks to campus every day. Only, this is our big pride point, only 17% of that 100,000 get in a single occupancy vehicle. And so you can imagine what we're then dealing with the other 83%. They have an ORCA card and they use transit or they walk or they bike. We even have a tiny little category for scooters and skateboarders relative to how folks get to campus each day. We work with King County Metro, Pierce County Transit, Community Transit, all our transit partners, I'm sure. Uh, I don't want to leave Sound Transit out of that. All of our partners to have a, a contractual relationship in terms of services they provide. We then have the programmatic delivery responsibility for having a way to do that. And that's a Husky card, actually, where it resides. And that's how they get on and off transit without having to carry cash. And it's tied into their tuition as students and fees as our faculty and staff. And so the business transactions happen through the ORCA system. Okay. So what does that actually look like? Do you then get in a room with all those organizations and negotiate deals or is there long-term contracts or, you know, tell me more about that. We do. We wish we had a little bit more elbow capacity uh, under the basketball net in terms of negotiating strength, in terms of dealing with our transit partners. Uh, Metro alone, which is one of the most, if not the most, uh, robust transit system in the nation. It's one of the transit systems that's growing still. We compose at the University of Washington one in every nine rides on King County Metro, and that is a wow. Currently, because of the need for the transit agencies to have a share associated with their fare box revenues in terms of the money they take in for rides, we aren't able necessarily to push often associated with what is needed negotiating in the transit arena. So we do our best relative to our youth fares and our, our senior fares relative to what we are. And we're also pushing right now for a student fare and hope to get some relief in, uh, as far as the fact that we are. But we are, our folks pay full price, full ride for what they get. So it's a it's an expense to the institution and it's an expense to our travelers. Yeah, so if, if I'm a student at the University of Washington, why would I get a UPASS card and then just get an ORCA card generally? Is there any benefit to me there? Oh, definitely. And the benefit comes from the university versus the transit agency. Okay, so you guys are paying, like subsidizing we, it for your we, students. We subsidize that. And the way we subsidize it is the other half of my role at the university, and that is parking services. So we have 12,200 parking spaces on campus. 
You can imagine that even though we only have a 17% single occupancy vehicle trip to campus rate, that we still have three to 4,000 visitors a day that come to campus that have to park. And then we have folks that still do drive to campus because of kids and doctor's appointments and sundry things that make them need a car in terms of their business mobility needs. But the good news is, is how the university chose then to subsidize our transit goals is through giving a portion of the funds I gather for parking revenues to pay for transit. Oh, nice. Okay. So a student would never want to go out and buy an ORCA card on their own because the they only pay for a quarter of service, and that may mean multiple trips every day, only $84 a quarter. And then the university chips in a bit as well from their central funds. So between um, what we provide in terms of parking revenue and what the institution provides, it ends up being a great deal for students and for faculty and staff because that is the same way we take care of subsidizing faculty and staff as well. Right. Okay. The University of Washington seems to have more than the average campus a number of different uh, modes to get into campus that may be different than, I don't know, I'm thinking of like Michigan State. I've spent a lot of time there or some of the other places. They're very car-centric I know we have the Burke Gilman Trail, we have the light rail going in now. I mean, how much of that comes under your purview or how does that weigh into? Those modes are huge for the university. So I'll, I'll start with what you gave the hat tip towards, and that is the Burke Gilman Trail. The Burke Gilman Trail in the city of Seattle is, again, using the metaphor, such a crown jewel of the biking community. Um, extends north and south and over to Ballard further east uh, in in amazing ways in terms of bringing bikers to campus and very, very proud of that particular resource in the city. We're also thrilled, I think it's uh, three and a half years, four and a half years, you'll have to do the math and and correct me relative to how long we've had our, our link light rail station open at the Husky Stadium spot. That has made a huge difference, not only in everyone's daily commute, But you can imagine with 80,000 fans coming to the seven high holy days of football at the university each year that for us to be able to reduce our carbon footprint by having a light rail station right at our stadium spot has just been magnificent that people don't have to pile in their car to come to a football game or a men's basketball game or all of the intercollegiate sports and athletic events. That has been tremendous in terms of our fan base embracing that way to get to a game or other event at the stadium. And so the availability of light rail right on campus has been enormous. And of course, we have three stations. More light rail is headed our way, and that can't but help the planet, help our pocketbook, help our faculty, students, and staff in terms of way to get to campus. And I was teasing earlier about kind of skateboarders and scooters and whatnot, but students really use those. (laughs) And so we have a lot of students that live within a mile of campus, others that don't and use buses and uh, our light rail systems. You know, it's a very uh, livable, workable, walkable, rideable place to get to. Our campus is unusual in that it has an enormous difference geographically and geologically. We have what are called critical slopes on campus where our our lower part of our campus has an enormous elevation climb to the central part of campus. 
And so it's interesting with now bike share on campus is that people jump on a bike even more so than jumping on transit now, which we're tickled about, mm -hmm. and travel up and down in terms of the elevations on campus. And even students and faculty and staff using our bike share program for these smaller trips helps the environment, helps our pocketbook, and it actually helps their own personal health, right. uh, which is great because there is a lot out there about how different transportation modes actually redound to everybody's better public health. Right. Yeah. Well, and how much of a difference has the electrification of those bikes made? I know because at least for me personally, I don't think I ever used a bike share in Seattle until the electric bikes came out. I've taken them down to the University of Washington station to get on light rail before. I've Go ahead. I really believe that the electrification of bikes is a game changer. I think it will even reduce some of our carbon footprint issues, and transit already does that enormously. So the idea that people would be getting off a bus, because that's usually what happens, or ride a bike and be able to ride a bike to campus is really exciting. And we've just opened three new bike houses at the University of Washington because we're, we're marching towards meeting our campus master plan goals of having doubling our bike spaces on campus. And what I mean by bike spaces are secured bike parking on campus. And in each of those bike houses, because of what's happening with electric bikes, we're installing ways for people to charge those while they're in class or at work. So it's even changing how we build bike houses these days right. because of the use of electric bikes. Okay, so that, yeah, some of these are, these would be personal bikes. I know there's a lot of yes. bike share programs where yes. you just get on a bike and it's yes. hopefully charged so it's, up. But. So it's both and. I, yeah. I call, you know, our, um, I call the bike share is kind of the incidental use, but the bike houses that we have, this is commuting use. And right. so we're tickled to provide a resource right inside where they park. Uh, you know, they're folks that live far north and far south. And without that charge, they, they uh, wouldn't be able to make it back and forth each other. So it's great. No, that's awesome. Yeah. One thing I, you know, I can imagine people that are not in a city like Seattle and don't have a, you know, a Burke-Gilman Trail, which is an old rail line running through the middle of their campus and don't have light rail going to their campus. Some of that's out of your control, right? That just happened to be going on. Yes. But what was in your control to help make that happen? Because I'm sure it wasn't completely out of your control either. Like how, how did being a proponent of those things, I mean, why did they put the light rail station at the University of Washington and not somewhere else? Two big reasons and, and really not much beyond that. Maybe others can think of, of more. One would be truly the, the birth of the U-Pass. The birth of the U-Pass is just really phenomenal. The whole idea that the university would get behind, there are many colleges and universities that have what is called a campus circulator, which is a bus that goes around campus and picks people up from various um, key points, either related to transit or related to pedestrian traffic, mm -hmm. and take them around. Our university thought so much differently than that, and that is we want to bring them here to campus from the whole region, right. <laughs> not just get them around and make it easier on campus with a campus circulator. So the students and faculty and staff, but it was mainly students that worked on it at the time of this whole idea of a subsidized transit pass. 
started bringing people to campus in all kinds of different ways, both lower cost for the sake of the matriculating student, lower cost for our service workers, mm-hmm. lower cost for our faculty and staff that are working in education, not always the highest paid field in the world. <laughs> and so this beautiful UPASS, and because then people really embraced transit. And sometimes, you know, it's like, who wants to ride the bus, you know? It wasn't always seen as a terribly elegant way to get to work uh, in our car culture and in your beautiful car or whoever, mom or dad's hand-me-down car for the students. People really embrace transit. So some of how this has happened is really because of the UPASS. And we have an emergency ride home program. So that parent that's worried about getting to the school or the kindergarten or a sick child or doing whatever, we made it available for folks to be able to use emergency rides. That took a lot of fear of, what if I don't have my car ah, away? Okay, no, that's that's brilliant. And so. that was embedded in it from the very beginning because there was a worry about what if, what if. What if. And so, when, when was the very beginning? Like when? Did, how long has this been? Oh, around? it's been over 20 years. I, I wish I had the actual date committed to, to memory. I think it's been 24, 25 years you know, over two decades of this kind of thing. So that's created literally a critical mass of transit riders. And even our students say as they graduate and, and, and they move on, it's like, I will be a bus rider for life because of what I get as a part of my experience at the University of Washington. I mean, we, yeah. we hear students say, I will choose where I live in the future to make sure it is near transit. I mean, that's 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 social behavior change. That's a, a whole kind of sea, sea change in terms of how people see their lives and their commutes because of that. And then the second piece is something that's just a function of where we are and how big we are and what we do at this campus, and that is 100,000 people come every day. So why not build a transit stop? Sure. <laughs> and yeah, and yeah. we're getting a second one. So <laughs> it just makes sense with where people travel in the Puget Sound region each day to put facilities and stations here because here's a spot people were coming to almost 365 days a year. Right. Certainly that is true, especially for our medical facilities. Yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. So it, it was a bit of a setup question, but <laughs> no, but it, it is something I think that I want to draw out in some of these conversations because people will point that, well, it's fine for Seattle to do that. They, they were already set up to do it, but th- there's a reason why you were set up to do it is yeah. what I'm taking away. And, I, and I there like were some that. cultural forces that helped that happen. Yeah. So I noticed in reading your background, you actually have a psychology degree as your undergraduate. Is that? That, that is true. I actually have an undergrad degree in psychology, Bible, and theology. I have a triple degree. Wow. Okay. The, the, the psychology ends up being the one that kind of, you know, goes on the billboard. But yes, a psych degree. Okay. How much of that has crept into your work now? Um, I would say an enormous amount. I really do believe that understanding human beings and their choices and their motivations is enormous. A good example of that is like the use of light rail. I talked about bus riding being, let's let's call it the blue collar way of coming to work. I'm, I'm being fun with labels here. Well, light rail kind of made transit white collar <laughs> and a bit gentrified. But what's interesting about that, it's like that played into people's behavior sociologically, psychologically. It's like, oh, maybe this isn't so bad. 
And so folks started using light rail, and then it's like, oh, maybe I can use a bus. And then all of a sudden, the bus became more attractive. (laughs) And I think that that is actually a little bit of psychology, or I would call it more kind of social behavior in terms of what is this all about? We really think in terms of what we have to do to get 17% more folks out of their single occupancy vehicles, we actually have to do, we think, psychologically based research about what would motivate them to get out of their car and into transit. So I think I'm going to actually, in the coming year, use probably our psych- my psychology degree quite a bit in terms of framing the questions and figuring out human motivation as to what would it take, what are the barriers both psychologically and practically and logistically of getting people, even even more people into a transit arena? We're going to do real life action research in terms of social behavior. So, hey, folks out there, kids that are still in college, uh, you know, majoring in psychology, they're, they're great ways to apply it in day-to-day life. That's awesome. Yeah. So how far do you think you can go? We've been given a goal by the city as a part of our campus master plan of moving from 19%, 17 to 19% down to 12%. We hope we certainly can bust that a bit, but that's going to be a stretch goal for us in the next eight years, eight to nine years. We've got to figure out how to do that. And I'm glad we've got a goal that gives us something very specific to shoot for. And I think when we do the initial assessment of the 17 to 19% that are still behind the wheel, We've really got to look at, out of that percentage, who can give up their vehicle and and transit that way and who can't. I'm still very worried in terms of equity and transit issues associated with the fact that we aren't Chicago, New York, or Boston. And what I mean by that is transit doesn't run in a robust way in our region late at night and early in the morning. That's a problem. That's a problem particularly for uh, our service workers, those that work in the hospital, those that work in our food services, those that are our tradesmen and women. We've got to do better in terms of extending our service hours. So I'm, I'm concerned not only about behaviors as to why people drive, but why people have to drive. And some of that is outside of individual choice. It's because they don't have a transit option, and so they have to do otherwise. Those are the things that you as an institution can work on. You can nudge people in the direction of of behavior change if it's their choice, but you can maybe work to change schedules. Right. And and I would say I I was remiss earlier with one of your questions about what we're negotiating with transit is that we may not be able to budge them much on our transit prices for cost of ride, Mm -hmm. but we are definitely trying to push them towards longer hours of service early in the morning and late at night. So if there's anything where we're trying to say, this isn't equitable in terms of only having transit choices at peak travel hours in terms of what we would consider regular 8 to 5 kind of communities. You know, we have a hospital that runs 24 hours a day. Mm-hmm. We have students that and, and faculty and staff that come to campus and are with us all day that need to eat and make their way through their day and have services provided. We have 600 acres of facilities and hundreds of buildings that need our tradespeople to be able to attend to them to kind of keep the lights on and the toilets flushing. The transit agencies have got to do better 
at providing longer times of service so that things aren't so shaved at the beginning and the end of people's work hours that they can't get to work and back home uh, in a reasonable way. It's it's a travesty to have an incredible benefit of a U-Pass. And our, our union staff just did some amazing bargaining and they have now their U-Pass fully subsidized and not to be able to use a benefit right. because yeah. the time of service of our transit partners can't allow them to get on a bus or a light rail train and get to and from work is a gift they can't open. Yeah, it'd be like having insurance, but you, the doctor won't take it, for example. Correct. Or, yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a, yeah. You know, here's this lovely gift, but you can't open it. And we want our transit partners to figure out a better way in terms of their service hours. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's as as I had hoped for, this is really interesting to see how all these different pieces come together because that's you've got infrastructure, you've got city government negotiations, you've got equity issues, you've got logistical issues. Yeah, so and those equity issues are critical. And we need to make sure they're not at the bottom of the pile, but they're in our thoughts at the top of the pile in terms of our priorities. Yeah. How do, how do you go about that? Because, you know, if you're looking at you know, the number of potential riders at a particular time of day, those are going to be the times where the numbers are going to be way down. So what are some ways that you like look at metrics differently or, or is that still a work in progress on how you make the case for that? Well, certainly metrics play a huge part. It, it isn't Johnny or Susie come recently. It's intentionally remembering that everyone isn't in the same logistical stream of supporting our businesses throughout the Puget Sound region or our educational institutions. Whether it's the University of Washington and all the myriad of other colleges and community colleges in the area, we think of our big campuses like Boeing. We think of our big campuses like Microsoft. We've got to think outside the eight to five box. And we've got to remember all of those shift workers all across the spectrum of the day is what keeps the heart pumping and the circulatory system going and the robustness of our whole economic system. We need to make sure we're not just looking at the eight to five commuter. So I think it's it's putting that at the top of the list. It's like, what can we do first? And then we know we have this whole foundational group of riders, but we've got to kind of flip the pyramid and say, how do we take care of folks equitably first? Because everything else is supporting that happening by your regular ridership during peak commuter hours. Got it. Okay. So it's, it's really just a priority order kind of question, not so much a... It is. It's putting your money where your mouth is, putting your, your priorities and your values where your money is (laughs) and getting that right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I know there are a couple other topics I wanted to get into. Um, one, you you touched on a little bit on procurement, and let's let's just talk about that topic in general. Yeah. So I worked in facility services stores as a part of facility services for uh, all of our trades folks on campus. And certainly green purchasing is where you can make a difference in the world. I think all the way back to whether or not that water stays pure or that tree doesn't get cut and remains standing to whether or not that fossil fuel does get burned bringing it to you. Green purchasing can make a huge difference in how you do business and as far as what you need to do to run an institution. The type of paper you buy and its recycle content 
to the type of fuel we distribute, to how we get it here, where we buy it from, so that we buy it from the closest purveyors. Sometimes the closest purveyors may or may not be the price point that you want, so you have to still think about how do you protect the taxpayer and the institution from price points, but at the same time protect the planet by thinking about how you supply locally. Think about how we purchase food. We're right in the breadbasket part of the state near the Skagit Valley, not far from the breadbasket on the east side in terms of the whole Wenatchee and central region. And why wouldn't we be buying within 100 to 200 miles? So what you can do in terms of how you spend each dollar in what you buy to build a life at the university and keep things running can make such an enormous difference. How long have you been thinking and talking this way at the University of Washington? Was this, and was this something that you were involved with in the, you know, the early days as in 20 years ago? Um, I would say 15 years ago at least, 15 years ago in terms of looking more broadly at what we purchase and how we purchase it and where we purchase it from. And that's, I'm proud to be able to say it's been that long. There have been other wonderful people in the university like Claudia Christensen and others that are a part of our larger procurement group of people and our larger procurement umbrella of the institution who've been working terribly hard at this to, to figure out ways where we buy furniture a certain way or we develop contracts a certain way and certain vendors and providers getting on with the university at good price points working with our office supply vendors to say we want to look at your green line of products and even certain office supply vendors that are green providers and everything they can sell to the institution so we're really proud of those efforts, and that can really move the needle environmentally and practically in terms of the difference we make in our world. So that's, I guess that's another similar topic area to transportation, right? Because it's, you're not controlling the economy directly, but you're a major influencer of it. And, and how you operate actually can move the needle on the entire state, region, you know, and eventually the country and the world, I suppose. Well, what about, uh, what about water? I know that's another topic that you've had near and dear to your heart. And Yes, it's been a real pleasure to work with the Salmon Safe Certification Program um, that came to the university. I think it's been over nine, maybe ten years ago. The university touches the waters and the boundary waters of the Puget Sound, and the Salmon Safe Certification Program is a very scientifically based way of looking at how we handle our stormwater. It has to do with how we even clad our roofs on campus. Ah. It has to do with how we take care of our streets on campus. It has to do with how we even treat our roads when it snows. It has to do with how we manage our 600 acres of grounds in terms of the trees and plants and lawns of the institution, how we take care of them in the summer when irrigation is needed sometimes, and it is in our gloomy nine months of rain, so that any runoff that makes its way to the Puget Sound is in the best condition it can be in before it hits the larger ecosystem. And it's been fascinating in terms of how much that touches everything from what are we doing for green roofs, what are we doing for cistern systems, 
What are we doing to manage runoffs maybe from how we've clad particular roofs so that it's treated before it goes into the stormwater system? Labeling all our stormwater outlets to make sure people on campus know that it's headed to the sound versus ones that are headed to the sanitary sewer system so that inappropriate dumping or even just understanding and education that that's where that's headed how we treat our fleet in terms of leaks and oils and preventative maintenance of how we care for our vehicles on campus. And what are we going to do each year as we build buildings to build them better in terms of how we deal with our stormwater management. So it certainly is something that I'm not a subject matter expert on. We have civil engineers that understand the stormwater system better than I. But it it was a perfect role for a generalist in terms of, but but this involves transportation, but this involves grounds care, but this involves our trades in terms of roofing, but this involves whether or not we use pesticides and herbicides and fungicides on campus. I think maybe maybe my new motto needs to be, you know, mistress of hodgepodge, because it involves so many different things across so many different disciplines and pieces. It's like, okay, and how can you pull this together and show what the university is doing to protect our stormwater and to protect the Puget Sound? And certainly with the horrific tragedy that we all witnessed of the death of a young orca that was born recently and carried by her mother, Yeah, that was pretty rough. Oh, it was horrific to watch a a mother orca with a dead baby for days um, relative to her mourning of that. It made me very, made me terribly proud to have protected our waters in the ways that we have done, and we need to do more. Just for listeners that may not understand, we actually have salmon that spawn in creeks in the city of Seattle. So it's still very much like, well, it's very urban, it's... And, and I, I can't help but tell this story. And my father fought in World War II, and he was stationed out at Whidbey Island. And during his time when he was stationed at Whidbey Island, he was quite a, a fellow. He told me it was important to make good friends with two people, the guy in the kitchen and the guy in the motor pool. And the reason for that is, is that the guy in the kitchen would pack him a lunch, and the guy in the motor pool would check out a boat for him, and he would go salmon fishing when he was stationed at Whidbey. When he did that in the, I guess that would be the 40s, he said you could catch salmon. He loved to exaggerate as a good southerner. You know, he, you could catch salmon on a piece of cheese. Um, but you could catch salmon in all levels of the water. You could catch salmon in five feet. You could catch salmon in 15 feet. You could catch salmon at 20 feet, and then the list goes on. When I came to work in the Northwest, my father had grown quite old at that point. It was a privilege for us for 10 years before he passed to go salmon fishing. My dad and I caught salmon at 50 feet. And there, when you looked at the radar as you were fishing in the Puget Sound, you saw that uh, where they were and how few. And my dad mourned the change in terms of what was happening with salmon in the Puget Sound. He was still glad they were there, the salmon and the fish, and obviously how they feed the orca, but saw the change that had happened to our waters. And I'm glad more are seeing that now than just a leisure fisherman that we need to reclaim. I know that there are Native Americans that talk about the salmon being so prevalent that you could walk on their backs. Yeah, I've heard that. You know, I dream for that um, reoccurring. That That is what we need to see for ourselves, not just for the sake of the orca. We need to see that for ourselves. I'm hopeful with uh, concerted effort and programs will 
continue to see protections for the Puget Sound, and, and they're really for us, and make it safer and better for all of us in the future. I, one of the things I do on my daily walks is I go walk around uh, where the new light rail station is, just to tie this all back together, uh, at Northgate. And there's a creek that runs through that area that they daylighted about, I don't know, eight years ago. It used to be, when I first moved there, it was a giant concrete parking lot with broken glass, and nobody was ever parked there, so it was just a big wasted space. And now it's it's actually got a community and uh, you know, movie theater and, and stuff, but it also has this huge bioswale running through the middle of it. And it's wonderful. gorgeous, yeah. And it's you know I see blue herons in there now. I see you know all sorts of great stuff, and it, it feeds right into Thornton Creek, which well, eventually isn't runs. it wonderful yeah. that doing the right thing helps us all. I think we have sometimes a spotlight piece of this is helping the orca or this is helping the salmon. What I've seen through these efforts is you get a more beautiful commute. Herons are taken care of. This is a place you can take your children to and show them right. as a wonderful walk on the creek. So it's, it's not just the orca that benefits or the salmon that come back. It's all of us get to benefit from creating a better place for the planet to live and survive. Indeed, yeah. Pulling those threads together, yeah. which is great. We've covered a lot, but also uncovered about 10 more things well, that I didn't have time to talk about. I'd love to talk a bit about electric transportation. Yes. Well, and actually one of the questions I was going to ask just briefly is the scooters haven't really hit Seattle like they have some other areas and curious to get your thoughts well, on that. We have an interesting part of how we look at transportation on campus and some of it is through the lens of, uh, wait for it, our Harborview trauma doctors. Oh, jeez. Okay. It's not where I thought you were going, but keep going. (laughs) um, I know that they're literally on the front lines of taking care of people that have been involved in pedestrian vehicle, bicycle, scooter accidents and incidents. The idea of bringing scooters onto campus, we know that we can't keep market forces away from campus. We haven't been able to say no to Uber and Lyft, and and it's not necessarily that we want to. We haven't said no to bike share, and we've wanted that to come. But I believe we're going to say no to scooters, and it's because of what we've learned from our Pac-12 colleagues, what we've learned from other Big Ten schools, and what we can see plain on its face as far as scooters with riders that don't have helmets can travel at speeds much faster than the bike share bikes and helmets are not a part of what people think to put on when they jump on a scooter. So we know that students will and faculty and staff will use them to come to campus, but we're not planning on getting into a vendor or procurement relationship with scooter providers. We really believe, just like you said as a commuter on campus, that you can get up and down our critical slopes on a bike share. This doesn't fill another transportation niche This just gives us another point of risk. It's a risk to the ADA community, meaning folks that are mobility impaired in terms of where people put scooters and how they throw them down, and the speed of which people travel on them and the lack of a helmet and a helmet system for folks that use them. So we know they will come, but we're going to continue to provide bikes. We're going to continue to provide our wonderful transit pass. And we will work with the scooter companies to make sure that uh, as they come onto campus and people use them from other locations off campus, that they redeploy them off campus and that we continue on with our robust bike share. 
Right. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. I mean, they are certainly a lot of fun to ride, but they are terrifying. And if I think about my kids riding them, that puts it more in the Harborview Medical Center perspective. Right. And, and, and frankly, yeah. I don't want to give Harborview more customers. Yeah. They've got plenty to That's start. That's right. Um, okay. Let's... Any, you were I, you were going somewhere yeah, with that yeah. conversation. So, so what we talked about how bikes, electric bikes, are a game changer. But of course, what we know is really electric vehicles are an amazing game changer. Everybody in the country pretty much knows when you say Tesla what that means. And so the whole emergence of electric transportation is really exciting. There are two pieces that I'm terribly proud about, and I would say an emerging third piece. I was part of bringing some of the initial electric cars to campus or hybridized cars. I can certainly claim we absolutely brought the first plug-in hybrid to campus as a part of a research project and that car is still in our fleet and still being used today and that is over I think 11 or 12 years ago that we've brought the first plug-in hybrid. We now have electric bikes that deliver mail but before we had electric bikes we had our first mail truck which is a large delivery vehicle that was a hybridized vehicle we jumped wholeheartedly into uh, a fleet in terms of our Prius vehicles. So we are in a process of electrifying our fleet. We actually hope to move to placing solar in some of our transportation facilities, like our structural garages, so that providing the electricity comes from solar power. And we're just pleased. It's amazing when you do the math associated with electrification of vehicles about care for that vehicle. And I'll use a personal example. I was an early adapter and purchased a Leaf. And I have done two things, three things now with my Leaf that I purchased in 2011. I bought a new battery. I bought a set of tires. And I bought wiper blades. <laughs> and that's amazing. It is a game changer in terms of cost for the consumer. It benefits both the pocketbook and the planet. And so electrification of vehicles is huge associated with the change that it can make. Obviously, vehicle producers, they're doing it in the big arena like buses, and then they're doing it in a smaller vehicle like sedans. And where the hard area is that mid-size vehicle, SUV, delivery vehicle, um, there's some like garbage trucks out there, but getting it into the heavy and mid-size vehicles in terms of electrification is still what they're working on. So we hope as an institution to continue to electrify our fleet. It will save the planet. It will save costs. It's just an exciting enterprise because it's a win, win, win across the board. Now, the Secretary of Transportation, Secretary Millar, would say, well, then that puts us in a tough spot, and he's very pro-electric vehicle, I believe. I don't want to speak for him, but that what we know in terms of what we've gotten over the years in terms of fuel tax. Right, because that's how is, we pay for our roads and infrastructure. That's right. right. Yeah. So we've got to figure out ways beyond the fuel tax to take care of the infrastructure we have for our vehicles, but not necessarily through what it costs for gas, because there's a payback. So the tough rub right now 
is figuring out how we can take care of our larger infrastructure by not necessarily putting more vehicles on it and then by figuring out how to do that with different kind of vehicles that aren't using as much fuel that are riding on that infrastructure. Yeah, let me follow up with a couple of questions there because by the time this airs, we will have released my conversation with Arjun Sakar from UC Santa Barbara and we'll have talked about some of these topics as well. One thing he brought up was purchasing used electric vehicles like they've been buying lease return leafs for example for the campus and he was claiming that they're just cheaper like outright cheaper than the equivalent sedans are you finding things like that as well it can work as a leaf owner and and overseeing our fleet there still are enormous challenges with the first generation of leafs associated with range anxiety sure and even with simple things that affect range like, so I'll use this kind of time of year as a good example, and this doesn't affect Santa Barbara, and that is when you put on heat inside of an old leaf, it costs you miles very quickly. And if you get stuck in traffic or if you have to, even in the city, go a small distance, sometimes because of the hotel features inside of a car, it will drain the range in terms of what happens, and then you get users that get panicky associated with what they're doing, even though it may not be far away or it may be just a short trip. So with the emergence of the bolts, with the emergence of plug-in hybrids and other vehicles that have electric capacity or fully electric, we're tending to stamp out kind of that range anxiety and say, you're going to be all right. If you're in a Bolt, if you're in a hybrid, if you're in a plug-in hybrid uh, like the Prius Primes, you're going to be fine. Mm -hmm. There's always going to be, if you run out of charge, a gas capability like in a, a Prius Prime. With the Bolts, this is the great news in terms of the Bolts that's been embraced by our lab medicine community on campus. Yeah, you were talking about that before we hit record, but you're doing, what, 300,000 miles a year in those cars? Yes, and they're now doing it successfully all electric. I mean, think about just what that does, and we're not putting those fossil fuel wastes into the air. And that's because the Bolts and other vehicles... They wipe out the range anxiety issue and the range issues. So we're having such success with older generations of vehicles that have matured in the marketplace and, and in what they do in providing electric transportation. So it's, it's wonderful. So we're tending not towards that. I would suggest for the listeners that have everyday commuting needs in town or to their job, this is what those early generation leafs are great for. These are great for going to work. These are great for grocery trips. These are great for your kid's first vehicle. It would have been great for me to come over here instead of having to take an Uber because my car was getting the oil changed today, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That instead of for business mobility like California is doing, so why I poked at California is they have a warmer climate. People don't turn on the, the defrost and need to warm up a bit in the damp cold. And so they aren't perfect for our weather situation, but they are perfect for so many markets and so many uses. And they're perfect to buy for a family 
for a reasonable priced used electric car for day-to-day commuting back and forth to work and your errands and tasks. Yeah, I, we're, we're actually in the market for one right now. In fact, we test drove one, our neighbors the other day. That was Very great. Very good. Well, good luck. So, so moving on, one, one more transportation topic, though, buses. You were talking about electric buses now. Are you Do you own some? As, we or, we or don't. You? And what is, what is rough and tumble about that? And we may be able down the road to partner with Seattle City Light or with King County Metro is the infrastructure you need to charge a bus. And that is so different than what you need to charge individual fleet vehicles. So we've we've expanded our fleet charging and our public charging on campus enormously in the past year. But what it takes to charge a bus is significant. If we can find the dollars to do that, then it'd be silly for us not to move in that direction just like Metro has. Part of it is doing the right thing takes the right amount of money. And we have so many right things that we could do is that I I wish for advancement in terms of going out for money, private-public partnerships, uh, working with other investors and other needs. But the infrastructure required to charge electric vehicles is significant. Yeah. Now, we should clarify, because I know that running through campus, at least Metro, has electric lines. So there are electric trolley buses that we've had since the electric trolley was here, right? Those have been around forever. But those are different. Those are not like the Proterra or the BYD buses. Exactly. Exactly. And if we could figure out a way even to do both and, that would be great by using the wires or by using procuring others. So there's some partnerships and vendors that are starting to come to the table saying, we'll take care of those kinds of things. So as those emerge more in terms of new markets and new ways to deliver that, we're wide open to hearing what vendors have to say. And many times because the new manufacturers want the business, they're then willing to work with us in terms of what does then that look like in terms of how they can help that happen. Got it. So yeah, lots of pieces to put together. So it's not just buying the bus, right? All right. Well, last kind of wrap up question then. You started in psychology and then I guess what you went, did a business degree? Or, no, or actually no? I, I did a degree in student personnel and higher education. So the first half of my career actually was in student affairs. That's right. Okay. And I then I that. migrated into business affairs, kind of seen both parts of the house of higher education, uh, the intrapersonal and interpersonal part in terms of student affairs and what it means to have a, a meaningful experience at a university in terms of student development and higher education administration. And now the business end of things, yeah. how can we save the taxpayer money, the institution money, and how can we do the right thing with our, our business dollars in terms of making a university work? Right. Okay. Well, so my question then would be, if you're giving advice to people that may be listening, so I'm sure many of them are students or early career sustainability professionals. What advice would you give them for the next 20, 40 years into their career? Facts and data are your friends. (laughs) Facts and (laughs) metrics, you know, if you can't measure something, you can't manage it. And I know that makes me sound like a data or business metrics geek, and and I'd say yes, I've I've become that. It is powerful to get out your computer and figure out how is it better to recycle. I really believe that if you have facts and data behind what does it mean to recycle things and how that keeps things out of the landfill and how you don't have to then pay landfill costs make a difference in terms of why you would want to do things. Knowing how you're going to save the institution money with an electric vehicle versus a fossil fuel vehicle 
makes a difference because the price point of an electric vehicle versus a fossil fuel vehicle causes a, a delta problem for people. But it's like, no, let's look at life cycle costs for the institution and for the institution's customer. You've got to be willing to do the math of how the planet and the pocketbook can simultaneously benefit. And then what happens when you show the math and the institution sees the, the wisdom and the logic and still doesn't want to do it? What you have to do is speak truth to power, and you have to be a broken record all the time. Okay, this is what we need to do because it's the right thing, not because it's the least expensive thing. And then I would say take a page out of what's happening in the world today with Greta Thunberg, with the young woman, uh, the indigenous activist, the Pelletier young woman that's been recognized by the UN. We need to take a page out of the fact that this big, beautiful blue ball is in real trouble. Our planet is suffering from the effects of climate change, and you must not be silent. You must not be quiet. Sometimes the math will work for you, and then sometimes you have to go beyond the math to doing what's right. What we do in the next two days to the next two years to the next 10 years is going to make a difference as to whether or not our children and our children's children are still here. And I wouldn't have said that 20 years ago, but I'm saying that today. I want us to, to stand up and work shoulder to shoulder. And certainly um, the sustainability professionals out in colleges and universities are on the front line of that movement. And they need to be loud, proud, and truthful about what they need to get the job done. Excellent. Well, I appreciate all of the threads you've been able to pull together in this conversation and just, you know, you've given me a lot of new things to think about, and I'm sure for the listeners as well. So thanks for taking the time to, to do this today. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn more about Anne, the University of Washington, or any of our other podcast episodes, you can visit us on the web at campusenergypodcast.com. A special thanks to Kaya Finlay, who helped edit and produce this episode, and Claudia Ferrer-Anderson for connecting me with Anne in the first place. If you're a Twitter user, you'll find us at Energy Podcast, and you can also find our page on LinkedIn. This show is a free service, but if you like what you hear, consider leaving a rating and review or just telling a friend about the show. As always, thanks for listening. Sure. All right, so let's try a sound check. All right. How about Betty Botter bought some butter? <laughs> Betty Botter bought some butter, but she said her butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it'll make my batter bitter. So she bought a better batter butter, put it in her bitter batter, made her bitter batter, Betty. So tis better. Betty Botter bought a bit of better butter. <laughs> <laughs> very nice, very nice. <laughs> Thank you very much. You're welcome.